Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This episode is actually comprised of three episodes, which first aired on the History in Five Minutes podcast by Michael Rank. We have uh, Isaac Newton as an alchemist, and then we have Gay Hong and Al Ghazali. And since they're all pretty short, I'm just putting them all together in one episode here now for the history of alchemy. Now, I don't always post the interviews I do on for other shows onto this feed. So if you want to see all the interviews I've done over the years, like these three are probably at least a year old right now. Um, I do link to them all on the other collaborations page in podcastnik.com. So go to podcastnik.com, like podcast N-I-K. And then go to other collaborations, and then you should see all the links from, like, Ask Historians and, and Michael Rank. And, I mean, there aren't too many, but um, I normally give them, like, a year before I post them onto my own feed, uh, you know, to make sure that everybody that's going to listen to them on Michael Rank's feed is going to go hear them. So if you want to hear the other ones, um, go to podcastnick.com. But I hope you enjoy these. This is the History in 5 Minutes podcast, the number one podcast for learning about anything in history in no time at all. I'm your host, Michael Rank. Today's topic is History's Greatest Alchemists, Part 1, Isaac Newton. So we'll be going into a three-part series on the topic of alchemy, which to a lot of people seems more of a historical curiosity than anything else, but really not all that important. Weird people in robes trying to mix chemicals together who were doing basically scientific quackery and something that we had to get rid of and throw into the dustbin of history until the Renaissance came along. Well, it turns out that there's a lot more to it than that, and we're going to have someone on our show who knows about this topic very well. We're fortunate to be joined by Travis Dow, who is the host of the History of Alchemy podcast. Travis, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So the first person we're going to look at is someone that most people would never think of as an alchemist, and that's Isaac Newton. So tell us, Travis, how does Isaac Newton fit into the world of alchemy? Yeah, he's he's a really interesting character to look at, especially pertaining to alchemy, because um, if I back up just a second and kind of paint a picture of, of the time period, so alchemy had its golden age probably around even right before Isaac Newton was born. So he, he's kind of a latecomer. And alchemy was, you know, you could, you could call it as pseudoscience or protochemistry. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure all those fit, but there's definitely like an occult component. And by Isaac Newton's time, it really had a bad reputation. So there was a lot of charlatans going around, um, you know, promising to, to turn your lead into gold right. or, or whatever. And a lot of this money actually came from nobility or even royal families. And so the general populace just, you know, didn't like, I mean, you know, how would you feel if your tax money was going to paying some guy to do some magic? Right. So it, it, it's, it's really interesting. But I think what some people don't understand about Isaac Newton is 
that you know he's in he's in this this age of enlightenment and he's he's creating all these insight into the natural world and if people just talk talk about him you know normally they would say okay well he's the guy that that uh, figured out had a you know kind of figured out his theory of gravity or talked about the laws of motion um or or you know the guy that found out how to how to work with calculus at the same time as leibniz but i think he has so much such he has such a more interesting side to him um and that is this this alchemy and not just alchemy but he did have this whole kind of um maybe not a cult but but a very strict kind of theological sense about him um like for instance he he tried to figure out when the you know taking a really strong look at the bible he tried to figure out when the world would end according to the bible right. and he said it as well, this isn't to figure out. This isn't to figure out when the world will end. This will just make other people stop doing it. You know, mm-hmm. other people stop looking at the Bible. And he said it won't happen before 2060. So we can just all put this issue to rest right now. We don't have to worry about it for another, you know, 300 years. We have 47, right? so that's great. Yeah, but well, for us, yeah, it's kind of coming up. But but um, so at his point, he's just trying to put that to rest and to get people to not talk about that anymore. But still, he did it. I mean, he. It's interesting to note. So. Um, when he talks about alchemy, and he does a lot, he still uses the same kind of illustration and th- these 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 alchemical you know symbols and codes and this um, funny language. It's almost like writing in code. And he you know he made up his own symbols and everything um, to write these works. So so he's very much part of that previous era while doing all these amazing scientific discoveries he wrote a lot about like philosophical mercury which is um not mercury as as you and i would understand it but kind of this like prima material materia this this like the first step in finding the philosopher's stone let's say and so if he would talk to other alchemists and they would say okay I, and, and he would look over their works and and he in his mind if he found out that oh they they figured out philosophical mercury then he would take them seriously and he might even you know try to try to have an alchemical conversation with them which was you know kind of risque for him to do i mean he was part of the royal society he you know had this reputation to uphold and his reputation could in no way be alchemical or or you know touch on those things but it did like yeah he wrote on quintessence um in fact that's kind of interesting the the way he wrote about quintessence so um, this was discussed over centuries by alchemists, philosophers. It even goes back to kind of the late uh, antiquity, like Greek philosophers. Just uh, one thing, and, real quick. Uh, what do you mean by quintessence? Yeah. So, uh, well, well, to Newton, it was the form of everything that God used in creation. Huh. So, to different people, it might mean different things. But, but to Newton specifically, he said that since time. It's like since the beginning of time, nature kind of taken over, but quintessence is the basis of, of all matter. And so, like, if you follow an alchemical recipe, you're kind of, in general, you're breaking something down to get to this prima materia, and then you're building it back up huh. to gold. Um, so, so he wrote a lot about what this was, you know, what the nature of it is. Um, yeah, just if... if you know, people are are still now kind of examining his writings, and it's just interesting to see that he had this whole system of codes and symbols and and uh, everything that he wrote about. And another thing, if you, if you talk about the beginning of time, so he had 
these strange beliefs that kind of they they fall in line with hermeticism so um he believed for instance that um the earlier back you go even even predating aristotle and socrates and the further back you go you get closer and closer to kind of true religion like like divine revelation right so he actually had a lot of respect for like really old societies like Assyrians or Chaldeans and that kind of thing. And then he believed that as time moved on, Aristotle or or even Hermes Trismegistus, they were they were kind of corrupt in some ways. Like they, you know, it was kind of like playing um, what's that uh, like telephone tag where you right. where you say one thing and it kind of gets corrupted over time. So he had really interesting theories about ancient societies and and all that. And and they didn't really get published this is kind of you know what he would write about and muse about um he did suggest at least privately to he suggested that we should be actually venerating and worshiping the sun moon and stars so so publicly he was a very christian person and i would say he was christian i wouldn't say he wasn't but he he very he had interesting ideas about what that means so he said kepler kind of said this too but he said that um you know, like, like, and this ties into his mainstream works. So if he's saying, if he's trying to prove the heliocentric model of the universe, and, and Kepler tried this too, he would say, well, it just, it's representative of the Son, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. So the Son should be in the middle because, you know, the earth should be not in the middle because the, the sun is what we should look forward to. And, you know, like that's God. So he said, you know, we should kind of venerate them like a Catholic might venerate a saint or the, or the image of a saint. So it's, it's kind of fun to take a look at Newton in contrast with people like John Dee or, um, you know, even, even Kepler. Kepler was a Lutheran, but they, they did have these kind of strange ideas, I guess, if you will. But um, he wrote some 5,000 pages on alchemy. He wrote some 650,000 words. He wrote on – what makes him interesting to study if you're interested in alchemy is that he dissected basically all alchemical works he could get his hands on. So he carefully translated a work by Nicholas Flamel. It wasn't actually written by Nicholas Flamel, but people thought that at the time. And so – um, when people look at Nicholas Flamel and they're looking at um, – Nicholas Flamel had this – There was people say he had this recipe hidden in a relief on the Church of the, Saint, of, of the Innocents in Paris. Hmm. And it's just kind of this – it has like um, St. Peter and St. Paul. And, but Isaac Newton said that, you know, just looking at the way they're standing and it's, it's just a little bit off and the symbols aren't quite right. And Isaac Newton said that that's really – a recipe for creating gold. Hmm. And uh, so it's just, you know, he, he translated, for instance, the Emerald Tablet, which is, you know, it's, it's right. kind of a mythical thing by Hermes Trismegistus, who's also a mythical figure. Um, but Isaac Newton said that Hermes Trismegistus was actually one of the kind of corrupted followers of Moses, as was Aristotle. And, you know, so he would, he would tie these ancient figures in that way. And uh, it's, it's really kind of interesting. So he has this whole other side to him, and it's actually bigger than his mainstream side. But um, people try to separate this, and I, and I would mm-hmm. say I, I wouldn't 
I wouldn't separate this so much. So if you look at Isaac Newton as a whole, if you look at both sides of these coins, then you start to get to who the real person was. Right. I mean, it's um, you, you see here, I mean, a lot of times we transpose our modern ideas into the past of, for example, this battle between science and religion and imagine that, well, the same thing was going on three or 400 years ago and the scientists like Newton had to overcome superstitions of the past like alchemy. But what we see, there wasn't that same type of mental distinction in the past. They were really seen as science or religion as basically two sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, that was uh, a great overview of um, like in someone like Newton, we see these um, two aspects uh, converge into one person. So, um, yeah, thank, thank you very much for that overview, Travis, and uh, really appreciate that. Uh, yeah, it's a very interesting take me. on yeah. the past. So, um, so Travis, you host the History of Alchemy podcast, and for you listeners, you can hear all sorts of really interesting uh, character takes, uh, just like he presented, uh, throughout different times in history. And um, where can people find you to get more of those episodes? Just uh, historyofalchemy.com. Okay, great. Well, thanks for being here. Yep, thanks for having me. For more history like this that's offbeat, obscure, but most of all not boring, come check out my website at www.michaelrank.net. There you can find podcasts and blog posts like this. I'll even throw in a free history ebook that you can grab right now at michaelrank.net forward slash free book. Have a good day. This is the History in 5 Minutes podcast, the number one podcast for learning about anything in history in no time at all. I'm your host, Michael Rank. Today's topic is History's Greatest Alchemists, Part 2, Al-Ghazali. In the last episode, we looked at the role of Isaac Newton in the development of alchemy. And in this episode, while I can't promise you that we will teach you how to transmute base metals into gold, I also can't promise you that we won't teach you how to transmute base metals into gold. So much like the last episode, we're joined once again by Travis Dow from the History of Alchemy podcast. Thank you for joining us, Travis. Yeah, thanks for having me. So the second figure, Al-Ghazali, who was he and what was his role in the history and development of alchemy? So Al-Ghazali is kind of in an interesting place and time. Um, alchemy as a whole kind of kind of moved from North Africa, let's say, let's say Egypt, and then over into Persia. And then Al-Ghazali is part of this Middle Eastern-like Islamic tradition of alchemy. And what what makes him even even in that line because there's there's a lot of greats in the Middle East there as far as alchemy goes, um, but what makes him really interesting? So we're talking about the early part of the 11th century, right? Sorry, the early early part of the 12th century, and so he he follows in the tradition um, of kind of these philosophical philosophical thinkers and theological thinkers, and he he's known among other things as the man who saved Islam, for instance, because he just had these this great insight on on how to think about things. Hmm. And um alchemy in the Middle East is is perhaps a little different than it than it was in the West, especially at the time. Um, alchemy in the Middle East definitely encompasses 
uh, medicine and also there's there's a spiritual aspect to it and um you know you can kind of look at transmutation as a whole um alchemy is obviously transmutating a lesser metal to a higher metal but there's also like you know if you transmutate a sick body to a healthy one now you're suddenly talking about medicine or or let's say a a sick soul to a healthy soul now you're talking about theology or or religion and ghazali took a, a strong stance on not necessarily mixing them so so there was a lot of kind of occult beliefs and even superstition that was happening at the time and ghazali is the guy that said no let's let's look at empirical evidence let's you know kind of split these things and he ranted against uh, neoplatonism which had a pretty strong foothold uh, also in the muslim world mm-hmm. and um also you know medicine and all and really theology so he, he kind of got the the sufism the sufist movement really going and kind of and, and sparked them um it is interesting to note that whether you're talking about the east or the west you're you're always talking about you know is transmutation possible? And both sides, no matter where in the world this was happening, at least you know, in kind of the, the Middle Eastern and Western world, you're you're contemplating God in some way. So so how can um, you know? Can man make metals change? What what is the nature of transmutation? How did God make the metals? And Al Ghazali kind of took this up, and he was clearly on the side that yes, it's possible. Just like others before him, like Al Razi or or Al Jabir, you know, they said yes, it's possible. And not only is it possible, we have a duty to do so because we can we can help people by doing this. Um, in the Middle East, there was a belief that gold could actually kind of like a a, a tincture with some gold in it. Could actually be used as a medicine Hmm. so alchemy really wasn't much different so if you couldn't if you couldn't um, buy gold to use as medicine then you're actually doing a public service and finding out cheap way to create it so it's not just about greed it's not just about you know better jewelry or decoration it's actually you know it it does come into medicine in some ways Um, there's one quote from his book, he he wrote a book, the the alchemy of happiness, which I'm not going to attempt to to pronounce in in Arabic. But um, th- there's a quote that says that I, f- I find very interesting. He says, "God has sent on earth 124,000 prophets to teach men the prescription of this alchemy and how to purify their hearts from baser qualities in the crucible of abstinence." So this is kind of like spiritual alchemy now. Hmm. Uh, this alchemy may be briefly described as turning away from the world and its constituents are its constituents are four knowledge of self knowledge of god knowledge of this world and it is really is knowledge of the next world as it really is so there is definitely a theological side to it um but al ghazali was interesting because he was one of the not not the first but one of the earlier people to kind of um, write against Aristotle and say, Al-Razi did similar things, but to say, you know, don't just read the old books, but get your hands dirty, get in a lab, you know, start, start cooking stuff. And, and, you know, if you're going to help people, um, even medically, you need to get your hands dirty and you need to go in the field. And, you know, um, and, and I think thinkers like this, there, we have, there's, there's some equivalents in the West also, but thinkers like this is really what got science to the next step. Um, otherwise, even in the Middle East, I mean, they would still be kind of stuck on the classics, if you will. So pretty interesting guy, I, w- I would have to say. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you see here that 
he's uh, taking the step forward of adding to the classical thinkers and questioning them. And um, what we have here, uh, much like you mentioned uh, in the last episode on Isaac Newton, which to my listeners, if you haven't heard that, definitely go and check it out. Newton is uh, looking at these issues of both the physical and the metaphysical and treating them as part of one common body of knowledge. Al-Ghazali is doing the same thing here. So you see that this time of history, these two issues aren't separated, but also in the East and West, uh, there's a lot of uh, common ground on the issues of inquiry that they're going over. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, thank you for that great overview. Uh, I would say Al-Ghazali in turn influenced people like Thomas Aquinas and and uh, those folks. So it is kind of an interesting thing that this contributed back to the West. So, yeah, so yeah. the thing that over or helped connect East and West back then was of all things alchemy. So sure. Uh, one yeah. of its uh, many uh, contributions. Um, so yeah, thank you again, uh, Travis, for that overview. And um, if you want to hear more character profiles like this in history of alchemy, which really is uh, an absolutely fascinating subject, uh, you can check out Travis's podcast, which is the history of alchemy podcast. And Travis, where can people find you if they want to find out more? It's just on uh, history of Thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me. For more history like this, that's offbeat, obscure, but most of all, not boring, come check out my website at www.michaelrank.net. There, you can find podcasts and blog posts like this. I'll even throw in a free history ebook that you can grab right now at michaelrank.net forward slash free book. Have a good day. This is the History in 5 Minutes podcast, the number one podcast for learning about anything in history in no time at all. I'm your host, Michael Rank. Today's topic is History's Greatest Alchemists, Part 3, Gehong. We are continuing our series of looking at alchemists in history, and I can't say whether or not we actually revealed the secret recipe for transmuting base metals into gold in previous podcast episodes, so... You'll have to go back and check that out for yourself. But we are joined by Travis Dow of the History of Alchemy podcast. In the first two episodes, we looked at Isaac Newton and Al-Ghazali, figures from Europe and the Middle East. Well, we're going to go out of that and go now into China and look at its tradition too and how its development was similar to the West, but also different. So Travis, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So tell us about the alchemical tradition in China and for Gang Hong's uh, contribution, what was it? Yeah, so it is interesting to note that kind of alchemy took place completely independently in at least three parts of the world. And that is kind of the, the Western, Egyptian, Middle Eastern, you know, and then European tradition. There's a separate Indian tradition and then also a separate Chinese one. So the, the time frame is very different and they have – there are a lot of differences in kind of the philosophy behind it, but by definition, they were these were three different cultures that were trying to make gold in some way. So the three three cultures that saw metals as changeable, and Ge Hong was from the fourth century. He lived from two eighty three to three forty three, which is really interesting because that's just when alchemy is basically getting started in uh, in North Africa and in, right. in Egypt at the time. Um, 
so he's he was a kind of a minor southern official during the Yin dynasty and he, he was interested in, in Taoism. In fact, he's he's a very important person in the kind of Taoist um, texts and, and and that that philosophy. And he's also interested in alchemy and kind of techniques of longevity. And a part of alchemy is not just the philosopher's stone, like making metal, but also the elixir of life. And with Ge Hong, this is very apparent. In fact, the the two are almost the same thing. So, in in one of his really great works, which is called the Baopuzi. He kind of, he writes about basically everything, but there's, there's inner chapters and outer chapters. I mean, he writes about um, natural philosophy and, and all kinds of other things. But one of the things he writes about in the inner chapters are these, the, like how to attain transcendence or like Im- immortality through alchemy. And it's, it's really interesting to look at. So um, his uh, his, his instruction in the esoteric arts kind of emphasized the manufacture of this gold elixir. Um, in Chinese, it's it's Jin Dan, if I didn't butcher that. <laughs> but he considered the only true significant means to achieve transcendence. So in Chinese medicine, you know, you have all these kind of um, practices like meditation or um, dietary practices, you know, all these herbs and, and things you can do. And he kind of said, you know, throw that all out the window. The best way to live forever is this kind of kind of a gold tincture, the, the elixir of life. So his internal alchemy, so he wrote, he split alchemy into internal and external alchemy. Um, internal alchemy to him was kind of going for immor- immortality, like this having this immortal body. So within the corporeal body, through both physiological methods like dietary, respiratory, sexual, that kind of thing, but also mental practices like meditation, meditation, visualization, um, you know, that kind of thing. But then he, he also had the external alchemy, which is laboratory alchemy. So um, he described like compounds and elixirs, and he, he actually kind of classified minerals and metals, which is, you know, way ahead of his time and in some ways. Um, also writing something called Fu talismans like amulets and then also herbalism and even exorcism so kind of a wide range that he would call, you know kind of classify as alchemy and then and then break it down so a little bit different than the kind of normal western tradition but clearly he thought that alchemy could also be made by by people so he had some interesting take um, he, he might have actually been the first person to talk about mosaic gold, these kind of flakes or leaflets that you could, um, you know, they basically have the color or luster of gold. It doesn't tarnish and, you know, is using for bronzing things and that kind of thing. He's probably the first person to ever describe that. And then um, he's also the first p- person to really get his hands dirty with tin. He's probably the first person to ever make tinfoil. And he even made this kind of magic money or like spiritual money out of tinfoil, which I would, I would love to see. I mean, I would kill to get my, you know, put my eyes, eyes on that. But, um, uh, for centuries, kind of traditional s- scholars looked at the Baupuzi this 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 work it's a huge body of work by the way this we talk about it as if it's one book but it's more like 80 books in one and this was kind of can, canonical Taoist scripture for centuries people thought this or, or considered it as such so he's, he's a big thinker in that time um he's 
probably the highest respected Chinese alchemist. So if you want to get one overview on Chinese alchemy as a whole and you only have time to look at one guy, that's probably your guy to research. Um, it is the reason we even have his works is because it was preserved as like part of the Taoist scripture. Um, so it, it's it's really interesting. And then something these guys actually have in common with Middle Eastern alchemy is this close tie to medicine. Hmm. So someone once asked him, uh, actually someone once asked his his mentor, let's say, you know, why why should we even concern ourselves with alchemy at all why why don't why should we eat gold and silver or why should we create this gold and silver to eat if it's already you know in existence and why should we take the trouble to make them so he had this kind of um people's (laughs) people's response to it so he said gold and silver which are found in the world are suitable for the purpose okay fair enough but he's talking about his own school now these are kind of these ascetic monks basically and he said poor as they are how can they be expected to get the necessary gold and silver furthermore they cannot cover the great distances to gather the gold and silver which occur in in nature the only thing left for them to do is to make the metals themselves so i think that's pretty interesting thing and and also he definitely sees gold and silver as a medicine in and of itself i know we we talked about this on the last episode a little bit that you know the elixir of life and the philosopher's stone the reason that alchemy and medicine were hand in hand especially in the middle ages and now we see even you know chinese middle ages is um because elixir of life and philosopher's stone would be one and the same thing you're not just after riches but this could also mean immortality or at least making your life longer so uh pretty interesting character i'd say yeah very interesting um and i think we see two uh fascinating aspects of his life first that uh he used alchemy much as uh, isaac newton and al ghazali used alchemy as not just a way to score some money by turning base metals into gold but a very wide program to integrate Mm -hmm. all sorts of branches of knowledge together and second, um, and I had no idea about this, so this was interesting for me to learn that one of the nice side benefits was tinfoil. So yeah. next time you <laughs> wrap up a sandwich and throw it in your fridge, think to yourself, weren't for alchemy, I wouldn't be able to do this. So um, be grateful. Yep, there you uh, go. Yeah. <laughs> if nothing else, that um, we have this. Um, so uh, Travis, uh, thanks for uh, this overview. And then thanks for joining us these last three episodes. This has been uh, a very fascinating take on something in history that I think people don't realize the value of it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and um, if you want to look at more episodes and character profiles, uh, you can look at Travis's podcast, which is the History of Alchemy podcast that goes over figures such as this, many others, many other times in history, and a really good character study uh, of what was going on in history and what uh, created this branch of study. So. Uh, Travis, where can people go to find more about this and more about you? Just go to historyofalchemy.com. All right. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks. For more history like this that's offbeat, obscure, but most of all not boring, come check out my website at www.michaelrank.net. There you can find podcasts and blog posts like this. I'll even throw in a free history ebook that you can grab right now at michaelrank.net forward slash free book. Have a good day.
Well, I hope you liked that. That was, of course, the History in Five Minutes podcast. Uh, Michael Rank has all sorts of topics from all you know from all periods of of history and really neat, interesting stories that he kind of condenses into five minutes, generally, um, or on average, I guess. And uh, also go check out his books. He has he has really great kind of popular history books like you know Ten Best This and Five Fiercest That, like too many to to give examples of there's all sorts of them and they're really cool you can find them on on amazon so just look for like michael rank um, or go to michaelrank.net but um, anyways i hope you like those in case those alchemists were familiar that's because we've done shows of isaac newton gay hong and al-ghazali on um the history of alchemy before like much more than than five minutes or ten minutes per alchemist so you can go back and, and find those if you want to hear more um, and also, I believe all those websites are updated on, on thehistoryofalchemy.com. So you can go type in Isaac Newton or Gay Hong, and it should all be there, I think. Thank you for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.